Hey everyone, this is Luke Wyatt, and you're listening to The Vote Podcast. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. I have a dream. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Mr. Gorbachev tears down this wall. I can hear you. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Read my lips. And that's about all I hope to say to Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. The best is yet to come. May God bless you all. May God protect our troops. That the nation shall have a new birth of freedom. That government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, what's going on? My name is Luke Wyatt, and this is the Vote Podcast. The episode of this podcast today is called The Controversy in the Commonwealth, because we are talking about the most controversial topics that has ever existed in American history that I believe are gun rights and abortion. Now, before you turn off the podcast, what we're going to do here today is basically talk about the Second Amendment and gun rights and also talk about abortion. And along with me, I have retired Supreme Court Justice of the state of Kentucky, Bill Cunningham, who's going to talk to us about the law behind gun rights and the Second Amendment, and we're going to talk about the law behind Roe v. Wade, and we're going to talk about abortion. We're not going to say if it's right or if it's wrong in abortion or gun rights, but we're basically going to state the facts so we can educate our listeners on the Second Amendment and also abortion. And as you see in the news, there's gun violence all the time in America. Just look at these few clips. All-out panic Sunday morning after a gunman opens fire. It was a pretty nasty fight that preceded the deadly shooting. Suicides at gun ranges are rare in our area, but it has happened before. The NRA has led the fight time and time again to protect. Gun owners made this election happen. You were the special forces that swung this election and sent Donald Trump and Mike Pence to the White House. I'm so excited to talk about these controversial topics about gun rights and abortion today and talk about the legal aspect behind both of these political dividing aspects. And I'm so excited to have retired Supreme Court Justice Bill Cunningham on the show today. I'm so honored to call him my friend. I'm so honored to have him here. If you guys have never met Justice Cunningham, Justice Cunningham is the most admirable guy and respectful guy I've ever met. And what is so admirable about him is that he loves to give back. 
he could retire and basically live out his days, but yet he was giving back and teaching here at Murray State University. I took his class last year in criminal law, and it was so fascinating just to pick his brain and to learn some knowledge that he's possessed throughout his years because he has lived in our state legal system for many years, and I'm so excited to have him on the podcast today. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, let's get into the show today. Ladies and gentlemen, today I'm here with Supreme Court Justice of Kentucky, Justice Bill Cunningham. And thank you so much for coming on the Vote Podcast, Justice Cunningham. I know you're very busy, so I'm glad for you to come here today. Be on the podcast. Too, too busy. I'm a retire now, so we might all tell the listeners I'm no longer sitting justice. So it gives me a little more freedom yeah. to say what I want to <laughs> so say. So you can't get in too much trouble now, what you're saying. Yeah. Murray State and also me in general are very happy for you to come to Murray State once again because, you know, you taught in the fall. So I'm very happy that you're here, and I'm very happy that you could come back to Murray State as well. I'm honored. Thank yeah. you for asking me. So basically what we're going to talk about is kind of the topics of about gun rights and abortion, but not so much the political partisanship of it, but the law and the legal aspect behind it. Because as you may know, there's, there's not a lot of arguments in the law behind it. It's more about the stances of it. So to start off with, I'd like to start, about, start off with gun rights. So in gun rights... In the state of Kentucky, there's a lot of controversy. And the big thing that political people that normally say when people talk about gun regulation or gun rights is that they're going to take our gun. So in the legal aspect of it, how true is this? Can someone really personally take our guns? Is that a really a political thing or is that just kind of like a wedge factor to get like swing voters? Well, you hit upon the gun rights issue and that and abortion are the two most controversial issues in the United States. No two issues have imploded upon the American scene to create more uh, division and more partisanship, and I don't think emotions run any higher than they do on these on these two issues. And um, the question you asked, are they going to take our gun rights? The answer is no. The United States Constitution doesn't allow it. The Kentucky Constitution doesn't allow them to come get your guns. Now, with that said, um, we need to sit down and rationally talk about the, you know, our constitutional rights on the Second Amendment and Section 1, Subsection 7 of the Kentucky Constitution. It has to come in play because it really says more about it than the, the U.S. Constitution. So, no, nobody's going to come and take your guns away. However, the United States Supreme Court, even in upholding the Second Amendment in, in the Heller case back in 2008 as being an individual right as opposed to a collective right for state and militia, said, yeah, you've got a right to, to, to have a firearm and no one's going to be able to come and take your gun, but that doesn't prohibit the state from making certain laws that will provide some common sense control over it. So I think that's where we are. And I think that most Americans, vast majority of Americans, are for the right to, to possess firearms. I think a vast majority of Americans are for, in, for common sense laws that uh, will help make our streets safer, that will help make our schools safer. And it, we just seem to have, we don't have the ability in this country to set and reason together. You know, God told us in the, the book of Isaiah, come, let us reason. So you and I are going to have this discussion about the Second Amendment. We're going to, to, to try to reason about it. But uh, if I sit down with anyone else and we talk about it, they may have a different opinion, and I may have a different opinion, but reasonable people are not going to hate each other because of that. And 
I don't know how these two issues, abortion and gun rights, have, have, have become such uh, divisive issues that we cannot logically and reasonably discuss it. So to answer your question, no, uh, nobody's going to take your guns away. Are we going to pass laws? We already have that have some uh, common sense based control. We don't want 12 year olds walking down the street with bazookas. But that's a gun control law. Common sense tells you we're not going to have that. So we need to bring some, some cool rationale, common sense to the issue. I believe I'm all for, you know, being in Kentucky, a conservative household. We need to have guns, but also regulations are a fair talking point, but we should dive into it because that's where compromise is going to be made. The compromise are going to be made in the regulation aspect of it. That, and that's what I truly believe. And like you said, you said it, they can't take our guns. So it's it's kind of a political wedge factor that people kind of kind of say to swing voters in a different direction and stuff. But in Kentucky specifically, like you sat on the Supreme Court of, the, of Kentucky, how many gun crimes do you see in the state of Kentucky? Is gun issue a big deal in Kentucky, and going off that is gun regulation. Have you ever seen that in the state of Kentucky as well? Oh, no, we never saw any gun issues as such. We, we deal with gun cases in criminal cases, you know, concealed and all these things, and enhanced some other penalties. But the gun rights has been Second Amendment driven, which is the U.S. Constitution. So all those cases, basically, when they come up, come up in the federal courts for interpretation. The Kentucky Constitution, Section 1, Subsection 7, addresses very specifically that the right to bear arms is absolute, uh, not only for protection of the state, but goes to state militias, but also for the person. But all state constitutions all bow down to the U.S. Constitution. And because everybody knowing that, they haven't proceeded under Section 10, I mean Section 1 of Kentucky Constitution, but always the Second Amendment. So to answer your question, Luke, no, we didn't see the gun issues as such in state court and coming up through the state system. It's always been pretty much a federal issue. Also, you can see that in the state of Kentucky and also the history of the Second Amendment, there's a lot of history that goes behind this. And like you mentioned in 08 when the Helen's case being an individual right, in the framers, if you look at it, back in the 1700s when they were writing the Constitution, the framers were getting this idea about it. There's a battle of Federalists and Anti-Federalists. And before we had the Constitution, we had the Articles of Confederation, where it's basically a union of states, and it was basically separate. And basically, they had militias, because there wasn't no strong central army, but there was state militias, and they had the ability to rise up. And as we transferred to the more federalist and more centralized government, we had a strong army, but also they, we have the Second Amendment now. So in the Second Amendment, we talk about having a militia. So... Can you talk about the history of the Second Amendment, but also can you talk about the word militia they use is more of a military stance or a state right, or do you think they mean militia as an individual personal right? Well, you, you make a good point. A lot of people don't think of the Second Amendment as a state's rights issue, but it really is in, in one respect. If you look at the Second Amendment, the way it was originally drafted, this was 1789. Actually, the summer of 1787, it was drafted, ratified in 89. They were meeting in Philadelphia. This country in 1787, uh, gun ownership was such a part of this culture. I don't think they gave a lot of, of, of um, consideration to whether they had the right to bear arms. I don't think that ever crossed their mind because, of course, they have the right to bear arms. It was second nature. Mm -hmm. uh, these people, many of them, traveled 
from Georgia to Philadelphia, they armed themselves to protect themselves. Many people used their own guns as they fought against the British Crown in the Revolutionary War. Guns were such a part, long guns primarily, but some uh, pistols, was such a part of American culture. When they sat down and considered the Second Amendment, it was just a bygone conclusion. Yeah, you have a right to bear armed. I mean, a third of them might have been packing when they wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about this federalism, as you point out. We want to make sure that our states have a right to have a militia. That's because that language went in there. Oh, yeah, everybody has the right to bear arms. They, I think it was the conclusion. They, If they had known that we were going to be having this debate here today, they'd been more pacific. Flash forward 1890. What? 100 years later, Kentucky puts its constitution together. Section 1, 7, what does it say? It makes it clear. Listen, folks. People have the bare right to bear arms for their own, for the state, saying we as a state have a right to arm our militia, and as a person. There's an interesting thing that's in that right that many people don't know about and, and don't consider. What did they subject that right to? In the 1890, when they met in Frankfurt, half of those guys were probably packing. Yes, everybody just assumed they had a right to, to bear arms. But even in 1890 with the Kentucky Constitution, they were thinking about some common sense gun regulation because they included in that very provision what? Nothing will prohibit, and this amendment will prohibit, the legislature from passing law prohibiting carrying a firearm concealed. See, they're already thinking, 1890, these are gun people, they carry it's, it's second nature. But they don't think that people will be walking around with the firearm concealed, and they have that in the Constitution. So now, 130 years later, they were longer, we let we let legislatures arm themselves go in the seal. So the context is guns are such ingrained in this country that you have a right to bear arms. But these men and women in the 1700s and 1800s carried it as common sense, and that was... Yeah, but, you know, you've got to use use some common sense. I don't know. Um, it seems like uh, that we live in an age where we have so much violence. I don't think our founding fathers would blink an eye at outlawing AK-47s. I, I think they would say, look, you know, this is uh, part of our culture, but you've got to use some common sense. So that kind of puts it in the context, the constitutional context, and then we came through the litigation I think it was U.S. versus Miller in 1939. That decision by U.S. Supreme Court seemed to say the Second Amendment was for the protection of states and state militias, not individual rights. Well, you know, gun rights advocates don't like that, but that was probably right. Well, we removed all doubt uh, in uh, 2008 with uh, the Heller decision, uh, District of Columbia versus Heller, said no, Second Amendment, means both state militia and individual right. So once you discuss or you talk about the history of it, that's where we are and that's where 70 or 80% of the American people are. They don't want people to be able to take away your guns. And we also, we don't want to be just un, have unrestrained use of farms up and down the city streets at all ages. One thing we forget about, we start talking about, because the gun lobby and the Gun people have not put their best face forward. One thing we have to remember, 
there are helpless people out there. There are aged, homeless, I mean, ho uh, infirm, shut-in old people who live in bad sections of town. They're frightened. They have a right to protect themselves. They're the ones that, you know, we need to think about, too. They have a possess of a handgun to protect themselves from people just uh, uh, violating their safety. So it's, you know, our gun protection is to, our, our, our gun rights is to take care to a large extent to the helpless, the ones that need some kind of defense against people who might break into their homes and whatever. So I don't know if I'm answering that question very well, but put it in historical context, I think we're right back where we started, back where 70% of the American people, we want gun rights protected, but we also want these legislators not to be stoolies for the NRA. Mm -hmm. They've turned into stoolies for the NRA. The NRA has turned into an industrial lobbying outfit for, for gun shops and for gun manufacturers. And they've entered into the, the criminal justice field in areas where it shouldn't be. So anyway. Now, Judge Cunningham, I want to talk about something that you just mentioned, and it's about the lobbyist industry. And I don't think some people understand how big and how important the lobbyist industry is in some legislation being written on the state level, but also on the national and federal level as well. The most powerful lobbyist firm out there is the NRA. And I think that's not debatable. They are the most powerful thing. And like I said, I'm pro-gun. I'm pro-Second Amendment. The lobbyist industry is so powerful. And I want to read you some things that the lobbyist industry has done, the NRA especially, on gun rights. So Judge Cunningham, I don't know if you know this, but you know, Barack Obama talked about it too. And I'll clip in a little bit later, but he said... Uh, the notion that I or Hillary or Democrats or whoever you want to choose are hell-bent on taking away folks' guns is just not true. And, and I don't care how many times the NRA says it. I'm about to leave office. There have been more guns sold since I've been president than just about any time in U.S. history. There are, there are enough guns for every man, woman, and child in this country. And at no point have I ever, per, ever proposed confiscating guns from responsible gun owners. So it's just not true. What I have said is precisely what you suggested, which is why don't we treat this like every other thing that we use? We used to have really bad auto fatality rates. The auto fatality rate has actually dropped precipitously, drastically since I was a kid. Why is that? We decided we had seatbelt laws. We decided to have manufacturers put airbags on in place. We decided to crack down on drunk driving and texting. We decided to redesign roads so that they were less likely to have a car bank. We studied what is causing this, these fatalities using science and data and evidence, and then we slowly treated it like the public health problem it was, and it got reduced. We are not allowed to do any of that when it comes to guns because people, if, if you propose anything, it is suggested that we're trying to wipe away gun rights and, and impose tyranny in martial law. Do you know that Congress will not allow the Center for Disease Control to study gun violence? They're not allowed to study it because the notion is, is that 
by studying it the same way we do with traffic accidents, somehow that's going to lead to everybody's guns being confiscated. When we talked about background checks, if you buy a car, if you want to get a license, first of all, you got to get a license. You have to take a test. <laughs> you have to, you don't have to do any of that with respect to buying a gun. And when we talked about doing effective background checks, it was resisted because the notion was we were going to take your guns away. But also another point that makes the lobbyist industry so powerful in the NRA is the ATF, which is the Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearm Agency, and their tracing center. In the ATF tracing center, we have spent our own tax money to dumb down this organization. And let me elaborate on this. In the tracing center, it's basically to help police. If there's a murder and there's a gun, we can trace who owned this gun through this tracing center, or we can trace who has owned this gun. Maybe this one guy committed the murder, but it wasn't his gun, and this other person owned the gun. So like, it's a big tracing center. But through our lobbyist industry and the NRA and all these legislations being passed, the ATF tracing center cannot have any trackable database in their facility. They cannot have any computers, any digital thing that can help find information faster. So basically, the ATF's employee, which is there's only 50 of them, have to use their resources and taxpayer dollars to dumb down papers and keep everything on file on paper. And let's say they get a paper that's an Excel file. You know, that's a that's that's trackable because it's it's arranged in a way that you can see it easily. We have to use taxpayer dollars to dumb this down and use a template of how to put this information in the template format. We cannot have any computers, any databases, everything's in paper. But what makes it so hard is that the ATF Tracing Center gets two million new reports each month. So 24 million new reports each year. And every year they are asked, and that needs requests, by 370,000 people. So they have 370,000 requests that come in, and they get 24 million new reports of like, hey, this is a new gun that we found, put this on file. So they get 24 million each year, and then they have to find 370,000. On top of that, they have only 50 employees working there. And they have warehouses full of just filing cabinets and paper, and it's almost so hard to find this information. Now, Judge Cunningham, I think it's so remarkable that our lobbyist industry has done all this. I think it's almost scary how powerful they have become and that they are. But this is what we have in America. It's hard to trace guns to help our police, to help our guys in blue. But also, we can't test these theories to see if it works or if it's bad. We can't test if regulations can help American people or if it doesn't help American people. We can't do that. Now, I don't know if you ever heard this from President Obama, but I think it's very fascinating about what he says. So I'm just going to let it play, and I want the viewers, the listeners, and also you just to take it for what it is. I just came from a meeting today in the Situation Room in which I've got people who we know have been on ISIL websites, living here in the United States, U.S. citizens, and we're allowed to put them on the no-fly list when it comes to airlines. But because of the National Rifle Association, I cannot prohibit those people from buying a gun. This is somebody who is a known ISIL sympathizer, and if he wants to walk in to a gun store or a gun show right now and buy as, much, as many weapons as ammo as, as he can, nothing's prohibiting him from doing that, even though the FBI knows who that person is. I'll also read the Second Amendment, but this is what the Second Amendment says, and it says, 
a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and to bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, this 27-word phrase brings up so much controversy and so many things. Oh, as, as a retired Supreme Court justice, what does this Second Amendment truly mean to you? And also, where does the lines get blurry at in this Second Amendment? Well, uh, in 1890, when Kentucky put together its Constitution, remember, this is... Uh, this is the era when we killed a governor, I mean, assassinated a mm -hmm. governor. I mean, this is pretty, but it feels like because you, right before the night rider, but this is a pretty violent state. So the legislators, although were coming from fairly violent um, electorates and all that, but they did include, they recognized that the legislature should be able to enact laws that would prohibit someone carrying a concealed weapon. They didn't say that it was uh, against the law, but they said the legislature could do that, which say is basically saying to me, 140 years later, whatever, yes, these are your rights, but the legislature can use some common sense. It's a public safety issue. You know, gun owners and all we all have children in school. We all want our people, innocent people, to be safe on the streets and in the school. So I think that's what. Uh, what, what people are thinking more and more for some reason or another uh, our legislators, our state legislators especially, are not listening to most of the people and they're not listening to law enforcement we're, we're subjecting our law enforcement they already are exposed to tremendous danger out there, we're exposing them to more danger, why they don't think more of them and they don't think more of what 60, 70, 80% of the Kentucky people, but they bow to the NRA because of tremendous money they put in and stigmatism, I guess they think they receive if they don't, you know, march accordance to their drumbeat. But NRA is losing its, its, its grip. Um, I have two long guns, two handguns. I don't want the NRA. Most of my good friends, even my sports shooters, uh, most of them no longer belong in the NRA. It's losing the credibility. Uh, so now it, it's in the filing bankruptcy. They filed bankruptcy, and they're relying primarily on gun manufacturers and also in, 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 in the retailers, gun retailers. So normally, uh, Luke, the old saying is not, even someone says it's not the money, it's the principle, it's the money. You follow the money, and the money here with the NRA uh, is, is the stance that they're taking. In Kentucky, like he, like he was saying, that they can pass legis they can pass legislation that is reasonable for regulation. And as I learned, and everyone should know, that the supreme law of the land is the U.S. Constitution and the federal government. But do you think the federal government is not touching upon this gun issue? I know they say it's an individual right, but do you think they're not touching on the issue of regulation of guns because they want to see what the states are doing as testing grounds? Well, I think all that ambivalence came to an end in 2008. It was that ambivalence. I think sooner we put that behind us, the better. The ambivalence is gone. It's not what I think. It's what the United States Supreme Court says. That's the Constitution I'm sworn to uphold. And in the Heller case, they said, no, it's not just a militia. It's also a personal right. End of story. Let's quit talking about that. But the state has the right to, uh, to, to pass reasonable legislation that does not go so far as to infringe as effectively abrogate that right. I think that's the problem. We've got, we've got to educate the, 
especially the extremists in this country, that that issue is gone. It, it ended. It's an individual right. Gun control people, whether you like it or not, it's an individual right. Gun supporters, quit worrying about it. Quit debating it. we got a U.S. Supreme Court that says you're not going to be able to come to your house and take your handguns away. However, it also said, but we're not going to stop the state legislatures or the U.S. Congress from passing reasonable laws to bring them in balance. It's a common sense approach. And I think once we accept that and quit debating it and quit promoting, the NRA promotes this paranoia that they're going to take their guns away. And it's not, once we, 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 um, that we eliminate that fear, you know, fear is a great motivator. You know, it's an emotional motivator that really is one of the things that keeps us divided in this country. And once we educate the people, once we come and reason together and say, this is what the law is, and this is what we need to accept. No, I agree too. And like, and like I said earlier, I mean, I believe in the Second Amendment. I think people should own guns. I feel like, like and, and, it, and it's common sense now. And like as a Supreme Court justice and as every legislator, people who commit their life to public service, they take an oath to uphold the law. And the law today is basically to... To, that a gun is an individual right, so it cannot be taken away. But also, I think it's really important to mention that if you examine the Constitution and look at it, there's also the Fifth Amendment of seizing private property and stuff. And I feel like the Founding Fathers put this in there, not necessarily for guns, but I feel like they put that in there for the safeguard to be like, you have the right to bear arms and stuff. You, you have the right to, to own a weapon and stuff. But also, if you look at the Fifth Amendment, they cannot take private property without compensation. But do you think this topic of gun rights and gun regulation will ever come to an, a, a compromise that can please both parties? Or do you think it will always be, you know, a political game? It will always be, this is the wedge factor that I can drive to get more voters in different aspects. Well, we can hope. Well, you're, you're basically stating what I've been saying, common sense and, and constitutional rights that go together. You know, the late Chief Justice of Kentucky State Supreme Court, John Palmore, said common sense should not be a stranger in the house of the law. That is the essence of gun rights as I see it. Why the federal government hasn't acted? Why hasn't the state legislature of Kentucky acted? I mean, because they are under the control and influence by a powerful lobbyists that has a lot of money and they can spend to influence them. You know, the, the Kentucky General Assembly, for instance, uh, passed a law requiring that each school's district, if I remember this correct, would have an officer, an armed officer in the school to protect the students. Why don't they leave that to the local school board? You know, some people, some parents might not want armed people walking around their school. Let's leave, let the local school board. You know, I was in Charleston, South Carolina last year, two years ago, and I pick up a, a, a Charleston paper I see pictures of armed men storming out of my state capitol. These are men armed with deadly weapons, exposing them, taking up on the third floor where the legislative chambers are. He looked like a insurrection in a third world country. And little do they recognize, I spent 12 years in my office there in the state. It is a regular daily routine for school children to be going through that capitol touring the Capitol. These children are, you know, they, they're going to be traumatized when they come through there. And you say, well, it helps them to get used to guns. No, many of these young children 
guns don't mean the same thing as they do to a sportsman or a sports shooter. It means the abuse of your father, or they've seen it in a, in a bad light and they come through there. Well, you know, it's common sense. 70, 80% of the people would say, we don't need armed people storming the halls of the legislature and going up on the third floor where we're making laws touting a particular position. So I guess uh, what I'm saying through all that is, <laughs> I guess the, the reason the federal government hasn't passed any laws that would curb this, or the state legislature hasn't passed any curb, because they've been intimidated, not only financially, but physically. When you have armed people allowed in the Capitol, I was told that there are people coming through the security there at the state capitol. Little old ladies in tennis shoes with their part had to go through security. They'd be armed with a, with, you know, M16 or whatever. They just wave them on through. How absurd is that guy? Huh? I know. So <laughs> I don't know. We just it's a, it's a highly emotional issue. We hit up on all those matters, but I think the right will prevail and common sense will prevail. There can always be improvement in trust. So I feel like that's something we can always work toward as well. But to shift it now to abortion, and I just want to talk more about the legal aspect of abortion, not so much the background of it. And we, I had your criminal justice class, and we talked about this. And one thing that I found so interesting is what you said is that a lot of people have not read Roe v. Wade, which is basically the court case that decided whether abortion is you know legal or not legal. So do you care to talk about Roe v. Wade and like the substance of it and not so much of the, you know, right or wrong, but the substance of Roe v. Wade and the law behind it and the legal opinion on it. Yeah. You know, I haven't seen anything in the last 30, 40, 50 years. It's interesting, though, that this wasn't such a raging issue back in the, the, the roaring 20s. It wasn't such a raging issue during the Wild West. It's just come about in the last 20, 30 years, a hot-button issue. So, yeah, I, I think we'll... I, You've got to believe that we're going to resolve it through common sense and reasonable discussion when we all come together. So, yeah, it's just going to take, it's going to take, you know, the, the, the greatest problem we have when you get to the root cause is apathy today. We've got so much apathy in this country. We just need people to get more interested in their government, more interested in our laws, whether they be gun laws, whether they be school laws, whether they be um, whatever. And, uh, I think to do that, we're going to have to instill trust. You know, people are distrustful. Part of this uh, tracking system that the, uh, they voted against that you the talked ATF, about. The, yeah. yeah, part of that is just growing distrust that people think the government is snooping on them all the time. The government's getting your name in this computer so they can come get your guns mm -hmm. or come get your kid. So why do we have this growing distrust? I'm afraid that a lot of it is because our public servants have let us down. From time to time, we got to restore that, but we don't have any trust in the court system it's because the court system's failing. So we've got to concentrate on working and building back up these institutions: our court system, honorable lawmakers that are honest and responsive to the people's needs. And that's going to be that only going to come about when people are not apathetic and begin to take an interest in when somebody runs for office. When somebody runs for office, I don't care whether you're a county judge, you're a jailer, you're a state senator, U.S. senator, we should be examining their character. We should be examining their, where they stand on the issues. We should be standing uh, on their ability to, to reach out to people and help them. Those are things we should be choosing uh, public servants on, 
not because whether they're a Democrat or Republican, not whether they're Christian or Jew, but these issues and do that, it's going to take time. Now we're voting so much by emotion. Emotion. And we're becoming one issue voters. You and I might sit here and we might disagree on the Second Amendment, but it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. And it doesn't mean that you're my best choice to be my state senator. Uh, one issue voting is what's causing a lot of our partisanship. So as we look to the future, we're just going to have to have candidates and public servants that renew trust uh, in the American way in our democracy. Yeah, and but like it seems like with gun rights too and all these controversial issues, it always kicks back to the states because it always seems what the state wants to regulate. And one thing I want to make clear in the Roe v. Wade that you mentioned that Roe v. Wade says it's potential of life, and that's the big discussion of Roe v. Wade. It's not so much if Roe v. Wade, if abortion is legal or if it's not, or if it's not illegal, basically. It is saying, where does life start and where does it end, basically? And the potential of life is what it's arguing. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the understanding the law behind it, it seems like the, the conservative aspect of it are saying that Roe v. Wade basically saying that the, pot, the the potential of life basically begins when conception happens. And, you know, if, you, if you're religious, that's where it also happens as well. But also, on the, this is what I have to say about the other side. What they're arguing is basically saying where there is a potential of life, there's also a potential of not a life as well. And you don't truly know until a heartbeat or brain activity are detected or what Roe v. Wade was arguing. Roe v. Wade was kind of arguing that the that the baby itself does not have a potential of life at a heartbeat because it cannot live outside of... Oh, and that argument. I really admire the way you stay away from emotional issues here on your program. Yeah, we go from gun rights to abortion. Abortion is, is emotional charged as a gun rights issue is. Abortion is probably the most explosive issue that's come across in the United States since slavery. Um, it, 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 is, it is divided us probably more uh, than anything since uh, I, can, I can recall as far as, a, as a, what has become a political issue. And here again, it's because of we have failed to come together and, and reason. Let us come and reason together. And um, I don't know what, what question you have. Where did it start? Where are we going? Well, right now, Roe versus Wade uh, is being reconsidered by a United States Supreme Court. What are they going to do? We don't know. The point I was making in my class, Roe versus Wade has become such a dividing uh, point in this country for people who are for Roe versus Wade and people who are against it. People who call themselves pro-life, people who call themselves pro-choice. Nobody has read the decision. I would bet... 85% of the people who are going to be listening to this podcast, 90% of the people who have been listening have never read Roe versus Wade, but they'll march in the streets for it, or they'll march in the streets against it. So if I have had any admonition to the American people today, read it and see what it says, and then see whether you agree with it or not. You probably, you may agree with it, you may not agree with it, but how did they reach this conclusion? And I think once you do that, you'll say, well, I don't agree with this decision, but I think maybe we have all of this debate mislabeled. We have a tendency in this country to, 
to, to state an issue by labeling people as pro-life and labeling people as pro-choice, when you get right down to it, there are very few people who are not pro-life. All the pro-choice people I know are pro-life. They're not doing Where's the issue? Where's the dispute? When does life begin? That's the whole debate. That's the whole debate of Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade says, we, we're not, they basically say, we're not going to get in this mix. Roe versus Wade says, we're not going to jump into where uh, life began. It's too much over our heads. But then they turn around and jump back in and say, but we'll tell you where the potential, potential life begins, which is basically the same thing. So it said potential life begins at viability, and from viability six to nine months, the state has a right to go in and regulate and prohibit uh, abortions at that stage. The problem with Roe versus Wade, if you read it, it it's kind of contradictory because the, the analysis, you may be in favor of the result, you may be against the result. It's hard to read Roe versus Wade and to conclude that it's logical because they say, we're not going to get into where life begins, but we will think the state does have a right to pass laws when potential life begins. And they say it's viability. Well, common sense tells you that potential life doesn't begin at viability. You may not be for uh, uh, protecting abortions uh, back to conception, but potential life begins when? When it's fertilized. It's a personal issue. I, I, I polled, the, polled your class that you were in. I said, what do you think about Roe versus Wade? When do you think that life begins? When do you think a fetus needs to be protected? One, there were a few that said viability, like Roe versus Wade. There were a few that said at conception. These are two strings. Many, if not most, said at the heartbeat. Okay, heartbeat, brain activity. What determines when you're dead? Heartbeat. When the doctor proclaims you dead, it's when your heartbeat and your brain activity ceases. That's a good logic to say, but that's where life goes on. When your wife tells you that a doctor heard had a heartbeat today, that that does something. The point I'm making here, though, I'm not making it very well. That's a personal definition. When does life begin? It's, and I think most people would say that life begins. It has to be protected. Now, who's going to make that determination? Does it begin at conception? Does it begin with heartbeat? Does it begin at fallibility? Who's going to make that decision? Is, is it going to be in the United States Supreme Court? Or is it going to be elected representation to make that choice? And I think that's they probably, uh, whether you agree with it or not, uh, they'll probably kick it back to the states and let the legislature. People in Kentucky, pro-life people are not going to be like that because our legislature, I mean pro-choice people are not going to like that because the legislatures have been heavily pro-life and we use those terms. But the point I'm making is when we come and reason together, let's quit calling people who are uh, necessarily pro-choice as baby killers and uh, let's quit calling those people who are pro-life being totally callous and, and uncaring for women's bodies. See how the name calling, it reduces down to making mean people. 
We don't want women's bodies to be abused. We want women to maintain a certain choice over their body, but we also want to protect human life. Let's talk about how this happened. Somebody's going to have to make a decision somewhere, and is it going to be the U.S. Supreme Court through a faulty rationale? They said, we're going to, we think the state has the right to determine this, but then they make the determination about the potentiality. So that's, uh, that's why it's such a bottled issue. We, we've kind of come to demonize the opposite side without really having much respect for each other. Yeah, and also, you know, in the law we talked about, in your class as well, but also in the law, it's, we focus on fairness in the law. So how can we please both parties? And if we look at the abortion case in parties, it's basically the parties are the unborn child and also the woman. So is there a way for it to be fair for the woman, but also the unborn child? Like, how would fairness be, you know, swung in this sense? Uh, here's the flaw in the viability argument. There are thousands, if not millions, of Americans out there right now. They're, they're still alive, but they're not viable. Mm-hmm. How many people do you have online support? How many people do you have heroic measures being st- taken to keep them alive? So at the other end of life, if you, if, uh, they're not viable. They can't, uh, or, or if, if you go back, they're going to have to require a heroic effort. So viability, to me, is not a very good standard. And I'm not, I, I just think that the Supreme Court of the United States could take the case they have before them and they can tweak Roe versus Wade to come to the same result. Or they can tweak Roe versus Wade and say, no, potentiality, if they adopt the potentiality center, begins at conception. So they could come down by tweaking Roe versus Wade on either extreme. Or they could say, well, we're going for constitutional purposes. You know, they said for con- the issue came up, I forgot the name of the case, when is someone become a person? Constitution protects persons. So they had to make a determination, does a, somebody become a person at what state? And they say at birth, for persons. They just make that definition. The Supreme Court of the United mm-hmm. States do what they want to do. And they could say, okay, for purposes of uh, potential life, we're going to say it's viability. Or we're going to say it's conception. So they can still take that consistently and imply that potentiality. Or they can say, look, this is too huge an issue for us. This is something that needs to be decided close to the people. It's highly emotional. It's highly personal. There are some states that are going to pass legislation that's pretty well consistent with Roe versus Wade. There are other states, probably Kentucky, they're going to pass legislation that's going to, it's not going to be consistent. But that's the democratic way. And, you know, women make up over half the, the uh, population. They're becoming, they're evolving political force. And uh, I think they'll be able to politically, whether it's in the state house or wherever, or in Congress, they're going to be able to uh, pull their own weight and, and use their own influence on that issue. Winston Churchill says it's hard to be objective when you're picking between the fire brigade and the fire. If you're picking between life and death, I choose life every time, don't you? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's the crux of the issue. Can you? Be, is it fair? Uh, who, who decides what's fair? What's fair to you may not be fair to me. That's up to our court systems to fair according to the laws we make. So. Uh, to determine what's fair, 
I think we're going to have to come down on the side of what's fair to protect human life. And then it asked another question, and when does human life begin? And then this court system is going to say it's not unreasonable for the legislature, your state senator, who you have a right to vote for, probably know, go to church with them, for your state senator, your state representative, to make that decision as to when it does, and if I don't like it, I can let him elect him out of office. Is that fair? There's always going to be people. I mean, even a small child learns at an early age to tell his mom and dad, that's not fair when you're dealing with competition with his siblings. What's fair is all relative. So I don't know. I haven't answered that question very well, but I'm not sure what's fair as long as we treat everyone the same under the existing law. You know, it's it's a very touchy subject. You know, like what you said, it's very emotional. And I, I know it's a, it's, it's really emotional and very touchy as well. But I just wanted to try to get the law out there and let people know what does Roe v. Wade really said and what what does the conservative argue? What does the, the Democrat argue to try to people get educated on this topic a little bit better than what they were beforehand? And our final question that we have on here before we get into kind of lighter questions is basically, have you seen any of us dealt with any Abortion cases while you was on the stand or on the bench or or even this practicing law in general. Well, it's a criminal law. It's a criminal law, and you'd think as a former prosecutor, I would have maybe a prosecutor. Roe versus Wade is a criminal case. It's got, uh, but no, I've never encountered it in state court because it's become a a uh, federal issue, and neither do we have any cases when I was on the Supreme Court because those cases all went up. You know, Roe versus Wade is, is has been the law of the land since what nineteen seventy something. Yeah. Seventy something, yeah. So that being the law of the land. Here's something that's very difficult for public servants to swallow. But the people forget this and and, and I don't know what kind of public servants they want. I think I took I took the solemn oath six times of public office. I swear to uphold the Constitution, the Commonwealth of Kentucky, the Constitution of the United States. Um, and I swear to uphold those two constitutions in my constitutional oath. That's not the constitution as I interpret it. It's the constitution as I read it and as our U.S. Supreme Court interprets it. Not everybody gets to interpret it. Our constitution says the U.S. Supreme Court, the constitution says what it says. So when I swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States. That includes the decision made by the U.S. Supreme Court interpreting it. And so I have to hold my nose and vote. I have to hold my nose and vote. A lot of times when I was on the Supreme Court, according to what the U.S. Supreme Court, I didn't agree with it. I despised it. But I had made an oath to uphold that Constitution. So the Constitution cannot be all things to all people. You asked a while ago about fairness. It cannot be all things to all people. At the end of the day, I feel like instead of pleasing 50% of the party, if we can please 100% of the, or even more than 50, then I think that'd be a great win for America in general and in, in the case of abortion as well. But to go off of that, we're going to try to go into some more lighter things, but also talk about you, Judge. And I know that you know you had a great career. I mean, you was a, you was a prosecutor for many years, and you served on the state Supreme Court. You was a state Supreme Court justice here in Kentucky. I mean, your son was a House of Rep- was a House of Representative member up in Congress in Washington D.C., and now he's running for governor of South Carolina. I mean, your your family, everything. I mean, it, it could be the Kennedys, uh, Judge Cunningham. Like you just have a family of politicians, but 
what legacy do you want to leave behind, you know, as a Supreme Court justice, but as also as a prosecutor and an attorney here in Kentucky in general? Ooh, what a good question. What legacy do you like to leave behind? Uh, well, uh, that I was honorable. And, uh, you know, that's the, 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 we all want to be those things that um, we, we, we admire and respect that you stood up, you know, you stood for something. I like people who stand for things. I, even though I don't agree with it. I admire people stand for things. I admire ministers that, prefer, you know, have a, of a faith that I don't agree with. Uh, I like to, um, to leave a legacy of uh, standing for something. Uh, I've always thought one of the greatest compliments you can pay for any person is that he or she is a class act. And I think that what is the, what what encompasses a person as being a class? I would think it it includes treating everybody with respect, decency, admiration, kindness, and compassion. So uh, as far as the legacy concerned, um, I just hope that um, it's it's something that people would care to maybe to emulate. I think that's wonderful. And Judge, I, I, I admire you. And I talked to, about this with your son, Joe Cunningham. And he was saying, like, you know, you you were a state Supreme Court justice and you was a judge for many years. And you like went up against some of these people who were, who were murderers and did these horrendous crimes. And, you know, some things that you'd see like horror films. But at the end of the day, when they come up and greeted you or when, when they come up in front of you, you asked to take their shackles off and you to talk to them and just act like they're human. And like, you know, at the end of the day, they're, 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 nothing's going to change. They're, they're probably going to be behind bars. But you did that out of respect for the individual. And I thought that was very admirable about you. And also just to see what you how you treat humans. So, I mean, whatever legacy I feel like you want to leave behind, I feel like you accomplished it in many different ways. And not just me, but more people have seen that as well. I mean, we, went, we took a field trip to the state penitentiary and you was a celebrity over there, Judge, at the state penitentiary. So, I mean, I feel like many people like know that you like treat them with kindness, and you, you were a class act as well over there. Well, you know, I think the two emotional issues we talked about here today, they point out a great need in this country for one word, and that is respect. If you treat everybody with respect, no matter what their standing is in life, you know, I had, as you say, criminals in my court, uh, and, and but... Most times they were cripples. They're standing there with leg irons. You, you can talk to them any way you want to and get away with it. But you never jump on anybody when they're helpless. You never demean anybody when they're helpless. You always treat people with respect. If we treat each other with respect, as you and I are doing now, in our debate over abortion, over gun rights, uh, then it breeds respect. And that's something that I find. And, and if candidates running against each other should show more respect. Uh, and I, this is something that happens in the courtroom. If they knew how much credibility a person has been doing that, I've seen lawyers go up in the courtroom and say, uh, yes, and due respect, all due respect to Mr. Wyatt, who I've admired greatly, is showing respect. It enhances the credibility. You have politicians get up in a debate and they'll say, well, I agree with Mr. Wyatt on that issue. And or, you know, uh, if, if they would show more respect to their opponent, I think that would gain them more credibility with the voters. So 
respect would be something that I would hope to leave as a legacy. I feel like you've got that in many different ways, Judge. I mean, respect is also very, you know, like, I feel like everyone strives for respect and stuff, and it's always something everyone wants. But also, another question I like to ask, but you're very admirable about teaching. I mean, you could, you, you, you've done a lot in your, in your life, but yet you come back to Murray State to be a professor and to teach, and you said you want to help young, young Americans and teach them the law and everything, but what's one thing that young Americans should look at the Constitution? Like, one thing I've, I've read in your... You gave a speech here at Mercy on Constitutional Day, and you, t- and you said you should look at the Constitution as a guide. And why should young Americans who are interested in the law, who are interested in politics, why should they, why should they look at the Constitution as a guide and what, what's in there that's so necessary to lead these young Americans to the future for a promising tomorrow, basically? Well, the Constitution of the United States has been called a miracle from Philadelphia, and it seems like a hyperbole, but it really is when you consider the diverse people came together in this United States, which is still pretty diverse, and come to agreement on this issue. This lasted. This written document was written when we were still bleeding people for sickness. When it took weeks and months to go across the Atlantic Coast, and it's a written document that's still in existence in 2022. Um, why? Because the document itself created a government separation of powers that kept one branch from getting so abusive to become a tyranny. It also it was written with 10 amendments that protects individual rights. It created all those good balances. And I want our young people to respect it and to realize that that's what's kept this country afloat all these years and try to perpetuate it. And the only people, the only way we can do it is people going to justice. We've got to help strong, honorable people going to justice. That's why I teach the from a justice class, hopefully to inspire them. If you want an easy job, don't go into justice. Don't be a lawyer or a correctional officer or a prosecutor. But if you want a challenging job that has purpose, has meaning, to perpetuate this way of life uh, for generations to come, what kind of meaningful life did James Madison and George Washington and many of those unnamed people who lived and provided this for was for posterity? And if we can pass it on, and as far as coming back and teaching and doing these things, always pass it on. Always give back. I mean, the people of West Kentucky has given me so much through the years that I think all of us have a responsibility to give back for what we have received. No, and I think you, I think you should give back. I mean, even my mother. I mean, I I love community service, and like, and, and I did that all through high school and everything. And I mean, I love giving back and just. Because, like you said, West Kentucky gave so much to you. West Kentucky has given so much to me, and I love giving back as well. And I feel like other people as well. Just giving back is a great way to do that. And you could, I mean, there's more ways to give back and stuff. I know you were a teacher, but there's more ways to give back. Someone can go out and just volunteer somewhere. So I feel like giving back is also inevitably a great way to help out your community as well, but also to guide Americans to, to that future as well. All right, everyone, that concludes today's episode of The Vote Podcast, the controversy in the Commonwealth. I want to personally thank Justice Bill Cunningham for coming on today's episode, and it's always so great to have someone so knowledgeable about the law to talk about these two issues that are so dividing in our political culture today. If you like today's content or the episodes that I am producing out here, please consider following this page on Spotify and share with your friends and also push the notification so you can get notified every time that I post a podcast. It truly helps out myself 
tremendously, but it also helps out Murray State University. Once again, my name is Luke Wyatt. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Stay safe out there. God bless, and God bless America.